As, as was said, my name is Father Dylan, and I, I am the pastor in Gregory Burke, Bonesteel, and Fairfax for Gregory County. And my favorite feast day, if you know anything about me, is very clearly Christmas. Um, <laughs> everything about it. Um, both the religious connotations, and I love the, uh, the cultural traditions, at least in my family, that have sprung up around it. Uh, there's something about it that um, I... There, there are two seasons in my life, Christmas and not Christmas. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that's always struck me about it so deeply is even when you move aside all of the tinsel and the great songs and all of the traditions of the food and the drinks and the, the family gatherings, the <laughs> Feast of the Nativity, which is what it's properly called, the Solemnity, uh, the, the, the Solemn Feast of the Nativity, is this powerful, inspiring, and at times when I think about it, gut-wrenching truth that as God watched humanity flounder in their sins and run headlong towards hell, and nobody can help them, he gets up from his throne and leaves light itself to descend into the darkness of Bethlehem into helplessness, into pain, into suffering. This is where it all kicks off. This is where redemption really hits the road. Uh, and so Christmas is always one of my favorites. And so needless to say, it is 86 days until Christmas. <laughs> but who is counting? Uh, I started listening to Christmas music last week, and I thought I was, oh, get a grip. <laughs> uh, so I love it. So when I was asked to give this talk last year, and I thought about it again this year, I always think, you know, when I see that people actually come, because I don't expect anybody, what you, why, why would you come to this talk? Because you come to an amazing conference that has a number of different talks that speak to very practical, concrete realities in your life, your parish's life, your family's life, and you came to hear stories. <laughs> <laughs> What is this talk doing here? Why are you here? I would posit that even if you wouldn't articulate it this way, I think there's something within Catholic DNA that looks at the saints and recognizes something profound and something more than just fun stories. There are new programs coming out every month. In how to better yourself, how to better your parish, um, how to get rid of wrinkles, and how to get your children to obey, and all of these things. Um, everybody claims to have the new answer. But the truth is that there are programs that have existed for 2,000 years, and they tend to have proven effective. And one of them was given to us by God himself. And I think that he's pretty good with it. Um... It's the program of the saints. All right? They're not just fun stories. The only reason that God raised these men and women up, inspired the church to beatify and canonize, to hold them up, to give them feast days, and to say the world over in the universal liturgy, you will celebrate this feast day. You will hold this person up. You will hold this mystery up. Is that because... It's because... They show us the way. They themselves are the program. They're not just nice stories, but they're to say, 
Here's the gospel. I'm calling you to be a saint. Here's what it looks like. Do it. Alright? Now, they provide for us values and practices that can change our lives. Alright? But, what we do is we glean them. Alright? What I mean by that is when, when you think of the term gleaning, it's kind of like with harvest, when you, when you cut the wheat, you gather up all the wheat. Gleaning is going back over the field and picking up the things that fell off. Taking small things. Take, for example, Francis of Assisi. The lessons that he teaches us about radical dependence upon God, about detachment from material possessions, about preaching the gospel in all of its fierceness and compassion, his calls to reform the church, fantastic things that provide lessons to us, practical, concrete things that we can do. However, there is only one Francis of Assisi. Some of you may, be, may feel called to take up some of these practices and values of Francis of Assisi. I will guarantee you, God is not calling any of you to take off your clothes and wander into the woods right now. Okay? <laughs> if he is... Or if you think he is, speak to, speak to me afterwards. Um, we will we'll discern this and clarify this. <laughs> there is only one Francis of Assisi. God is not calling you to be him. And yet his life may speak to you and inspire you and show you the way forward. That's what the saints do. We're not called to be somebody else. Your, you, your relationship with God is so absolutely unique that there is no one from the beginning of the, of the creation of humanity, now or will ever be created until the world comes to an end, who will relate to God in the way that you do. All right? You are called to shine in a way that no other saint has or will. And so don't try to be somebody else. Okay? But look to the saints, and God will show you different things from their lives that he may be calling you to do to help accentuate, to help make you a saint. The goal is not to get your name under a picture of St. Joseph. It's to get your own picture. The goal is to become a saint. But we do that by seeing the road that's already been blazed. Alright? So... This is kind of what I want to do for you guys today. And I don't know if I'll be successful or not. Um, but I want you to know that this is the end goal. Is to give you some concrete practices after telling you some stories of the lives of the saints. And to put a fire in your belly. God is calling every single one of us to be a saint. This is the, the great reminder of the Second Vatican Council. It's a lot easier to become a saint if you're not kicking and screaming. So my hope is that you're inspired by these stories. All right? So the first one, some of these saints you're going to know. There's one that I'm almost certain um, that most of you don't know. Um, but I love their stories, and I think they're inspiring. And I think they provide concrete realities and practices that will change our diocese. The first is St. Tarsisius. I couldn't get this darn watermark off this picture. But I love this image. Um, St. Tarsisius, many of you may know him, um, especially if you were an altar server as a boy. He's the patron saint of altar servers and acolytes. 
Saint Tarsicius um, is a third century martyr in ancient Rome. And before I tell you his story, I think it's important to understand the context there. Because it's so hard for us Midwestern Americans to understand the horror of Roman persecution. Despite the fact that on the coasts there's a lot more industry and stuff like that, there, the Christians and Catholics out there are already beginning to really taste in earnest social persecution. I mean, there may be bakers scattered throughout the country, but really becoming social pariah, you can see that in the cities. We don't necessarily experience that so much in the Midwest. So it makes it difficult to understand in Rome, in the third century, the fear, the absolute terror that pervaded this time. This is under the, this is under the Valerian persecution, the Emperor uh, Valerian. He was second, I think, only to Diocletian in terms of his ferocity and his brutality. At this time, there was no trial. There were no juries. If you were found out to be a Christian, most people in the streets simply turned on you right there. They didn't call for the centurions. They beat you and they stabbed you and they killed you in the streets and left your body to rot there. And they did so if they saw you wearing a Christian symbol, if they saw you make a Christian act, if they heard a slip of the word, um, something that a Christian might say, even if you weren't Christian, it drove, it was just pure madness at this time. In some ways, I think we can, we're starting to see a little bit of that in our own country right now, huh? Absolute madness. Thank goodness we haven't reached that level yet. But um, to kind of have that in your mind, that as a Christian, you are in constant danger. And it's not dangerous and they're going to torture you for information and then let you go. Their singular goal is to make an example of you. To inflict the most horrific punishments that will end in your death to dissuade everyone. I don't know how many of us would be Catholic if that was the situation. Who would convert to that? All right, There must have been something powerful in the church's witness and its faith and the miracles that existed. Um, because think about this in terms of your own life situations. Would you bring your family into the church at a time like that? I don't know if I would. I don't know if I'm that strong. I don't know if I'm that sure of my faith. I've never been tested in such a profound way where I would take a child knowing that we would both be killed. The child would not be spared anything. It's incredible. This is the context of St. Tarsicius. Okay? It literally drove the church underground. You have to remember that. That the catacombs were underground cemeteries. And so the only time that they could pray together and to be Christian together was in the middle of the night in an underground place sitting next to corpses. It's a lot different than today. Alright? They did this every day. By the way, this was the, the Sunday obligation. The church didn't have to define that yet. Because every Christian went to Mass every day. It was just their desire and yearning for the Lord. They knew what the Eucharist was. And they couldn't stay away from it. And so this is where Tarsicius enters. Despite the fact that they were hiding and they did the best they could to stay away from the Roman persecutions, 
Rome was super good at, this, at their job. And they captured Christian after Christian. And they tortured Catholic after Catholic. And they locked them up first. A lot of them went into the arena to be eaten by animals. And so they'd be held in prison cells. And what I find so fascinating about this time is that Christians, they didn't organize breakouts. They didn't say, we need to go, let's, let's go do a jailbreak. But they did break in to give Holy Communion. To say, die well. Witness well. Don't give in. Don't turn around. It's incredible. And so, what, uh, the, the story that I want to tell you from Tarsisius is the moment where, at the end of Mass with the bishop, in the midst of this catacomb, it's in the middle of the night, a number of their runners who were taking Holy Communion to the prisoners to be executed, they themselves have been captured and tortured. And so the dates are coming up close and there is this urgency in the bishop's mind. They need Holy Communion if they are to withstand the trial. If they are to face their martyrdom well, they need the body and blood of Christ. And so he turns to one of his priests and he says, I need you to do this. And the priest takes the host and immediately there's an outcry amongst the people. They've already captured our layman. He's not going to get past them. He's a priest. And once he does get captured, you've lost another priest, another one who can say Mass for us. We can't send him. And this argument goes on for hours. Who is going to be the one who's going to make the attempt and more likely than not be captured themselves? And in the middle of the night... As Christians are shouting in the catacombs and debating, a 12-year-old boy says, I will go. Can you imagine being that child's parent? Knowing that Rome would spare nothing. You probably grab your child and say, he doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't understand the consequences of his position. Leave him be. His parents, though, wait for the bishop to speak. And the bishop denies him. And denies him. And this goes on, and they go back to debating. And Tarsisius comes back again and says, Send me. They won't suspect me. They won't take a boy. Alright? They wouldn't think that you would send a boy. Send me. And after hours and hours of this boy pleading, the bishop finally gives in to the argument and says, you know what, you're probably right. They won't, they won't suspect you. Um, and so as he gives Tarsisius the Blessed Sacraments, he says, do you understand what it is you're holding? Do you understand that you hold the universe in your hands? Do not throw this pearl before the swine. Do not let anyone take this from you. You are entrusted with the mysteries of God. Go and strengthen our brothers. Can you do this? And Tarsisius, in the presence of everyone, says, I would rather die. And he takes, Holy, he takes the Holy Communion and he sets out. By this point, it's now morning. And he leaves the catacombs. 
and he's walking along the streets towards the prison and he's clutching <laughs> he's clutching the host so tightly um, and he comes past a group of friends of his that are playing in the street and there is something super suspicious despite Tarsisius' arguments that nobody would suspect him this is pretty <laughs> something's going on there um, and they say, come play with us, Tarsisius. He says, I can't. There's something I have to do. I have to finish this first. And they look at his hands and they say, what are you holding? And he doesn't say anything and he begins to walk faster. And the boys run up and playfully they try to get his hands to open up and his hands refuse to move. He won't let go at all. And they start to pull on him and beat on him and say, Tarsisius, I thought you were my friend. Show me what you have. And he says, I can't, I can't, I can't. Let me go. I have to go right now. And at this point, they begin to get frustrated. And one of the boys pulls on his arms and Tarsisius jerks back. And the boy falls and hurts himself. And at this point, the boys turn on him. And they begin beating him. And as they're pulling on his hands and he's beginning to lose strength and he's starting to slip... He screams out, Jesus, help me. The worst thing he could have done on that street. Because at this point, the boys and every adult in the area realize that he is a Christian. And a mob descends upon him. And they begin to punch and stab and bite and stone him. This is a 12-year-old boy. right? A 12-year-old boy being torn to shreds. And the entire time, he never lets go. At this point, a centurion on one of the street corners sees this mob murdering this boy. And regardless of the situation, all he can think of is, this isn't lawful. So he runs over, disperses the crowd, and he's holding this dying boy. He's bleeding out. And he recognizes him. The centurion is a Christian as well. And Tarsisius, who's barely able to speak at this point, recognizes the centurion and says, there isn't much time. You have to complete the mission. You have to, you have to finish the task I was given. And he opens up his hands and gives the centurion Holy Communion. And the centurion runs off to finish the task. Tarsisius dies in the street. Twelve years old. I don't tell you this story to bum you out. I tell you this story because every time I think about it and I tell it, it almost moves me to tears and it just fills me with such inspiration. What incredible love for our Lord in Holy Communion. Can you imagine being stabbed and beaten and at being able to control your involuntary movements, not to cover your wounds, but to hold what you believe to be the most important thing in the universe. There is devotion there, brothers and sisters. There is examples and lessons from St. Tarsisius' life that lay out a solid practical step for anything you want to do in your spiritual life and anything in the parish. Devotion to the Blessed Sacrament is paramount. All right? You will not find any saint who did not have a devotion to it. Those who do not have a devotion to the Eucharist are not following 
the program laid out by the Savior and the Church. Right? I say that realizing the weight that I'm placing behind it. Right? And I think this is super easy to see in terms of its practical ramifications with our own country. The parishes that are growing, the parishes that are excelling, are the ones that have reinstituted um, adoration and are actually faithful to it and support it. And not just a small portion of the parish, but everybody's on board. The programs that are excelling, the people who are coming back to the church, are the ones who are going to visit the Blessed Sacrament. This is statistically proven. The parishes that are dying is very simple to see. One of the very common factors in all of that is the tabernacle is generally hidden somewhere. It's not in a prominent place. Adoration doesn't exist. Confession isn't really there. Nobody really believes that the Eucharist is Jesus Christ. You know, that's one of the most frightening statistics in our country right now is that as few as 40% of Catholics actually believe in the real presence. Tarsius didn't die for a symbol. He wasn't holding bread. He was holding his Savior. And so the most practical thing that you can do in terms of stewardship or discipling, which are just contemporary words for that old one, you're called to be a saint, it starts with Eucharistic devotion. All right? And so the Lord isn't asking you to spend 20 hours a day before the tabernacle. But I think if people made small visits, if you went five minutes a week before the Blessed Sacrament, even if you just popped your head in the church and said, I see you, Lord. I see you. I acknowledge you're there. You will become a saint. You can implement this as a catechist. All right, If your class is not far from the church, far from the tabernacle, and it's not going to cost you a half hour in terms of time for transition, have your prayer time, spend some time before the Blessed Sacrament with your class. Find out who is missing Sunday Mass and invite them to come back. Promote proper reception of Holy Communion. This is a big one. All right? Because how we receive communion communicates what we believe about it. If reception of Holy Communion is hasty, if you receive on the hand and you walk away like this, it communicates that you don't believe that God is there. The church has prescribed how to reverently do so. And on the tongue. Promote that with your children. Teach that to those who are just coming into the church. Practical lessons that I'm telling you right now, brothers and sisters, as you'll see with our next saint, our battle is not against flesh and blood. The church will not be saved by some program. It'll be saved by the holiness of its members. All of the great reformers of the church have shown this to be true. This is the one that I'm not sure if anybody really knows. Does anybody know who Bartolo Longo is? Yes. <laughs> this makes me super happy because I just found out about it myself. And Bartolo is, he's pretty intense. Um, he looks like a nice man, doesn't he? Um, we shall see. <laughs> so Bartolo.
Bartolo is born, um, he, he kind of grows up and, and lives during the, the latter part of the 19th century in Italy. This is during the reunification process of Italy. Now this is one of the most turbulent times in Italian history because this is where you see the rise of secular fascism, <coughs> the loss of the papal states. All right? You're seeing this um, rejection of Catholicism, but unfortunately not of the, dev not of the supernatural. So what you're seeing is this, this fascism infiltrate all of the universities, begin to vandalize, sack churches, assault priests, wage these kind of protests that we see nowadays, these kind of rioting all over Italy. And it's all targeting the church, while at the same time, this massive influx of New Age occultism. At the age, I think it was like 12, Bartolo's mother dies. And at that point, he begins to drift from the faith. He kind of just becomes lukewarm. When he goes to college, he goes to college at the University of Naples. Right? And there's not much difference between the University of Naples at that time and nowadays, although I'd say we're worse off now. He goes and he falls into the same trap that so many of our own uh, children, our brothers and sisters, our friends did. Maybe we ourselves did for a while. Um, fall into just heavy alcohol and drug abuse. Um, fornication and all of that, uh, very promiscuous. And at the same time, what he falls into is this secular fascism, but he rejects atheism and falls into New Age practices. And he begins attending seances all over Italy and going to tarot card readings and being trained how to do these things. Um, he eventually reaches a point where he's ordained a satanic priest. Right. And it is absolutely horrific, the description of this ordination rite, the human sacrifice, and mocking the symbols of Catholic ordination with oil and anointings and laying on of hands and all of that. At this point, Bartolo himself becomes fairly well known because he is able to obtain favors from the demons he prays to for all of his friends. The problem, though, is that there quickly become signs of demonic possession. He begins to have these hallucinations and visions of demons everywhere. It's almost, he doesn't have cancer. The doctors say there's nothing physically wrong with him, and yet it's almost as if his body is being eaten from the inside out. He's wasting away. And as he's coming close to death... He's laying in this bed in this hospital and he hears the voice of his deceased father screaming, return to God, return to God. And it's this moment of like the devil had this wall between Bartolo and the church, between uh, Bartolo and Grace, and it was set so firmly and Bartolo had helped lay the bricks himself, but Bartolo had kind of screwed up and he left a hole. He still loved his father. And so, this brief moment of grace. And Bartolo ends up gimping out of the hospital and making his way to an old friend of his father's, a professor who had refused to cave to the secular fascism of the age. And he stayed Catholic, Vincenzo Pepe. And Vincenzo sets him up with a Dominican friar 
Lucus begins this rigorous implementation of exorcisms and then concludes it with confession. It's only when Bartolo confesses his sins that there's this break, there's this snap between him and the demonic. And he begins to receive the sacraments again. His body begins to heal, all right? <laughs> begins to heal, and he gets better. Um, sorry, I know there's only five minutes left. I'm going to go over. If you need to leave, leave. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> we're about 20 minutes till, till lunch at noon. Um, but he begins to get better. But he, he has this real struggle with letting go. He doesn't believe that Satan has let go of him. He believes that his sins, that he's still damned. And he's on the brink of suicide. And he says... This is it. And he hears this voice in his head from his confessor who says, if you promulgate the rosary, you will never despair of salvation. And so he says, it's one of the 15 promises of Mary. Um, for those who say the rosary promoted, he says, well, we're going to test that. <laughs> I'm not going to leave this valley until it's done. And so he spends the rest of his life in Pompeii builds this church, and after he builds this church, which is now the Basilica of Our Lady of the Rosary in Pompeii, which attracts three million visitors every year, um, after he builds this little church, miracles, hundreds of miracles begin happening when he's praying for people as they come here. Now, um, I'll just, I'll I'll wrap up his story quickly, because I do have one more saying I want to go through, is to say that um, his life, he credits his freedom from demonic oppression to confession and the rosary. These are the practical lessons that when you read his life, I don't advocate becoming a satanic priest and then going to confession. Um, But I tell you, you can glean things from this, that confession is not an option for a Catholic who's serious about holiness. And it's not an option for a parish who's serious about turning things around. And especially, the lesson that I see from his life is get real. The occult is real. And it is present in our diocese in a way that few know. And so I encourage you to go to confession, to pray to St. Michael. We had a beautiful tradition in our church for so many years that after Mass, we'd we'd pray to St. Michael for the deliverance of the church from evil. And while we no longer do that, I encourage you to do that. After Mass, before you leave your pew, pray to St. Michael. Engage in this warfare. Fend off these powers of darkness that are present in our world. There was an exorcist in Chicago just a couple of years ago who said that one good confession is worth a hundred exorcisms. So if you yourself feel like you're being oppressed, if you know somebody who feels like they're, they're just really engaging in this warfare, go to confession. Make a good confession. Return this to our culture. This is the best thing that you can do, is bring back confession in your life, your family's life, and in your parish life. And lastly, the, it's, the rosary is the most powerful weapon we have. Padre Pio said that, if you can't trust him, I don't know who. Right? Um, and I would really highly encourage you to look at the 15 promises of the rosary. Pray it every day. All right? These are concrete things that will make you holy, that will make your parish holy. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is Catherine of Siena. 
She is one of my favorites. I've, I've absolutely fallen in love with this girl. Um, she's born in uh, the early Middle Ages and right at the outbreak of the Black Plague. All right, the plague that wiped out nearly a third of Europe. Needless to say, she's seen some stuff. Um, she's born into this, doesn't get sick, grows up um, in this merchant house, so they're fairly wealthy. Um, but at an early age, she has this mystical experience where she gives herself entirely to Christ. She says, I, I am yours. And Christ receives that. Well, she doesn't tell anybody about this. And her mother tries to marry her off when she's of age. And this is problematic because Catherine is probably the most beautiful girl in Siena. And not only is she just angelic in her face, but she has this dark brown, blackish hair that just glows. All right, it just shines. People, they, everybody wants to marry Catherine. Um, well, her mother says, Well, I found a good guy for you. And she says, Well, I already gave myself to Jesus. And her mother says, isn't that nice? Um, and so Catherine runs to her room, and she just butchers her hair. And then she scars her face. She mars her beauty. And says, well, now nobody will marry me. And she was right. <laughs> she walked out, and everybody was like, whoa. Hmm, I don't, it's not that you're ugly. It's that you're kind of crazy. Um, you know, there's something not right there. And her mother is furious, but it is what it is. And so Catherine then spends, the, spends a number of years, she turns her room into a cell, where she stays there all the time, simply praying. Incredible mystical experiences. It's during this time that one of her mystical experiences is that Christ gives her a wedding ring. Marries her. Incredible. Um... Fascinating, though, during this time is that she, um, she, doesn't, she does many penances, but she stops eating. And she lives the rest of her life sustained only by Holy Communion. Um, absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, eventually, though, our Lord says, it's time for you to leave the cell. Time to get back to work. So she leaves the cell and she goes out and spends 20 hours a day fighting the plague in the hospitals. She then spends two hours a day in prayer and sleeps for two hours. And she does this for years, all right, during this plague outbreak. So incredibly faithful. Miracles are happening all around her. And then she finds out that the Pope is in Avignon. The Pope has fled Rome, and him and a couple other popes have been living in Avignon, France. This is what I love about Catherine. She starts writing letters because she can't go there right now. And she's like... I am your most humble and loving daughter, and um, you are the vicar of Christ. You are endowed with supreme authority. And then just, boom, she just starts laying into him and says, and you're wrong. <laughs> Get back to Rome. And after you've gotten back to Rome, reform the clergy, or you will go to hell. Incredible woman. I don't know if I have, you know, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and she did this for years, and the Pope refused to listen to her. So eventually, she travels to Avignon, <laughs> and she does it right to his face. <laughs> and cardinals are trying to burn her at the stake and whatnot because of all this, and just no fear of authority, other than preaching. Yes, you have authority, Holy Father. You are the supreme Pontiff. 
but even you must obey the will of God. She became the Pope's conscience, in a sense his spiritual director, telling him what God was demanding that he do. Eventually she convinces him to return to Rome and begin the reformation of the clergy. All right, the reason I tell you this story, and I'll, I'll wrap up quickly here, it's about 10 minutes to lunch, I want to give you time to get over there, um, is that there are a lot of practical lessons we can take from Catherine of Siena's life. Again, there are so many other stories. Learn about her life. Read. There's a, there, you know, I was just thinking about this last night. Um, there's a great book. It's called Lay Siege to Heaven. Um, it's a, kind of a biography of hers. Um, because... <laughs> Whenever somebody would ask for prayers, she would literally assault heaven. She would go into these trances um, where, in these visions, she's just hammering on the walls of heaven, just beating them down until God answers. Um, incredible, very real relationship with Jesus. Um, so that's a, that's a practical point. It's a great book if you want to read that. Um, but practical lessons, penances should be a part of our Catholic life. Not just during Lent. Fasting won't kill you. And if it does, fast from something that won't. <laughs> All right? Fasting is necessary. Penance is necessary. Just like the talk we heard this morning, we have to give. And we have to give more than just during Lent. All right? We have, and that teaches us to hunger and yearn for Christ. All right? Visit the sick, the homebound. Go to nursing homes. Go to prisons and seek out the lonely. A lot of people say, hey, Father, are you going to the nursing home? Father, are you going to the prison? Father, are you going to the hospital? Many of them, yes. But that's not specifically my duty. It's yours. Um, Catherine teaches us that the apostolate is necessary for holiness. And I say this last one with a certain amount of trepidation. Call your shepherds to holiness. Call them to holiness. Don't slap us like Catherine. <laughs> Be gentle. <laughs> but you have a right to holy shepherds. You have a right to a holy pontiff. You have a right to a holy bishop. You have a right to a holy priest. You have rights to holy deacons. Support them. Pray for them. But call them forward. Encourage them. All right? As much as it may come to a shock to all of you, we are simply men. <laughs> and we're wrong a lot. Popes can be wrong. Bishops can be wrong. Priests can be wrong. Deacons can be wrong. Call us to holiness. Be gentle and call us back to the faith of the ages and the zeal of the apostolate. You deserve it. You have a right to it. You need it, I need it. All right? Catherine shows us that we have to help in the reform. All right? The lives of the saints are the bricks that form the road home. All right? Follow these practical things. The recipe for holiness is devotion to the Eucharist, frequent confession, rosary, penance, and the apostolate. If you do those things, you'll never need to order a new program in your parish ever again. You'll save a lot of money. <laughs> These are the things that have made saints in every culture, in every age, regardless of the cultural context, because they are the divine program. And they're what the saints show us. It screams through their lives every time. All right? 
You will become holy, your parish will flourish, and the church will conquer in this present darkness. And so I say to you in the words that Catherine of Siena said, be who you are and you'll set the world on fire. I prefer torch it. Right. <laughs> May of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Name the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful rest of the conference.